The following is a presentation of Remnant. Hi, this is Jerry from Remnant. Let's be honest, this life can be hectic, draining, and downright confusing. My hope is that by listening to this message, your life can be impacted by God's great love for you. And His love will give you wisdom, courage, and strength. Thanks for listening. You're listening to a message from Pastor Jerry Godsey. talk about losing today and what that means. All right? Let's pray. God, thanks. You love us. You care for us, God. And you'll love us no matter what. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would uh, let us know that you are with us. Thanks, God. We ask it in your name. Amen. I said earlier that God loves losers. Let me put it to you more bluntly. I think God prefers losers. How does that sit with you? That God prefers losers. I feel like a dog on a chain with my head thing there. If we, if we said that God prefers losers, that almost seems un-American, doesn't it? Because we love, we love winners. Look at this, this quote by George Patton. Americans love a winner. America will not tolerate a loser. General George S. Patton. See the movie George C. Scott, Patton, where he's giving that speech in front of the big American flag, and like, yeah, that's classic. Look at this one. Coach Vince Lombardi, one of my personal heroes. Show me a good loser, and I'll show you a loser. I don't know how many times I've said that to my teams over the years. I want them to hate losing as much as they love winning. But if you do lose, you've got to shake the guy's hand and say, okay, good job. None of this. The referees were against us. Shut up. We all want to be on a winning team. I'm not even a big horse racing fan, but when the Kentucky Derby comes around, I'll watch it. And I'll pick somebody that I think I want to win just because maybe I... I don't know, I, I like the horse's name or I know the owner or the trainer or something. I know of them. We want, we want, and then you cheer for them in this, this horse race that, you know, you don't normally watch horse racing. You know, Victor, I forgot to press the button, the red button there to start the video. So that's to say this. America loves the losing. I mean... God loves a loser. God prefers him. Jim Trestle was the former head coach of Ohio State. And he wrote a book called The Winner's Manual, which is interesting because Jim Trestle didn't have a great record at Ohio State necessarily. Eventually they told Jim Trestle that he needed to go work somewhere else. 
He wrote a chapter called Handling Adversity and Success. And he includes this quote from a guy you may have heard of. He's got a couple of bucks. A guy named Bill Gates. The founder of Microsoft. You know, Windows, Word. Success is a lousy teacher, he said. It makes smart people think they can't lose. I can tell you that I have learned an awful lot more from my failures than from my successes. And Lord knows there have been plenty of failures. Then he, This is what Jim Trestle said after that. I love that quote because it puts so many things in perspective. When smart people think they can't lose, there's an upset brewing. That's when David beat Goliath and the underdog triumphs. Remember Mike Tyson? Dude was brutal. I think I've told you before, I was, I was upset because I was, I was youth pastor in El Cajon, and I was mad because I was going to miss his fight because I had to go play in a church softball game. Fight's getting ready to start. I'm putting on my shoes. By the time I was finished tying my shoes, the fight was over. He just walked across, walked across. It was one of the Sphinx brothers. None of them are very good looking, so I never know which one is which, but they're not very good looking guys. And this guy looked a lot worse after Mike Tyson got done with him. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, I th- he hit him like four or five times. The guy just went down like a sack of potatoes. And I thought, oh, okay, I can, go pl- I can go play softball. But then he met a guy named Buster Douglas. And nobody thought that Buster Douglas had any chance of beating Mike Tyson. But he did. Mike Tyson got complacent. He got used to the good life. You can win too much, too soon, too easily. Every now and then you'll hear somebody, like when a team is on a, is on a win streak, uh, then they'll lose one, and somebody will say, well, it was a good thing for him to lose. And I always struggle with that, but I can, see the, I can see the idea there. You know what? You need to know that you can lose. I like what Sonny Jurgensen, the, 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 the quarterback for the Washington Redskins, said. He had had a really bad game, and the, the crowd went from cheering him to booing him, and he said, look, I've been in this league long enough to know that you can go from the penthouse to the outhouse in a few plays. And if you don't know that, it can be shocking at first. If you don't realize that you can go from the penthouse to the outhouse, there's trouble. God specializes in taking losers and displaying his power through them. God prefers people who know their weaknesses. He prefers people who see their flaws. He prefers people who admit their mistakes and cry out to him for help. Do you understand your weaknesses? Do you understand your flaws? Now, sometimes we say we do, but we've always got an excuse, right? Well, you know, I... I did this, and I did this because, you know, I, I, I grew up bad, and I grew up, you know, this. You know what? Maybe, but if you're 30 years old, the way you grew up probably doesn't have as much impact on you now as the way you choose to live now. I get it. I get it. Unless you think, some of you maybe don't know, I, I, I came from far from a silver spoon background. I grew up in the ghetto in South Central L.A., Single parent. Dad left when I was eight. Okay. 
we had Cheerios for Thanksgiving one year. So don't, I know what I'm talking about. I know what, what it's like to leave behind a bad situation. At some point, though, it's time to grow up. At some point, it's time to say, okay, that was then, this is now. Have you ever wondered why so many of the people in the Bible had flaws? It's because that's all that God had to work with. Why does God use us? Because we're all he's got. We are all God has. And you know what? That's okay. God's okay with it. Think of it now. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but have you ever thought about all the losers in the Bible? Listen to this list, okay? Noah got drunk. Noah killed a guy. Oh, not Noah, no. Moses. Noah got drunk. Abraham lied about his wife. Sarah laughed at God. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses murdered an Egyptian. Gideon was fearful. Jephthah made a foolish vow. Samson had serious problems with lust and anger. Eli failed as a father. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Double whammy there. Solomon married foreign wives who turned his heart toward idolatry. Elijah suffered with a struggle with depression. Jonah ran away from God. Peter denied Christ. Paul argued with Barnabas. Barnabas compromised the gospel. James and John wanted special seats in God's kingdom. All the apostles argued about who was the greatest. And if God could take that bunch of losers and misfits and use them to change the world, what can he do through us? I'm telling you, God prefers losers. God prefers people who know their weaknesses, see their flaws, admit their mistakes, and cry out for help. I like this. If God chose only well-rounded people with no character flaws, some of the credit would inevitably go to the people and not to the Lord. We were talking this week, I was driving some guys back to El Cajon. We are talking about Samson. And whenever you see Samson in the movies, what's he look like? Big buff, he's like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, if you see somebody big and buff like that doing all of these things, these heroic things and strong, he's picking up, you know, animals and flinging them around, you think, oh, well, yeah. Is there any wonder why he's able to do that? No, he, he can bench press a Volkswagen for crying out loud. Look at this guy. But nobody could understand how Samson could do the things he did. I think Samson was like a 98-pound weakling. When he talked to Delilah, yes, precious. If I saw some little Casper J. Milktoast-looking dude all of a sudden push a Volkswagen, you know, bench press a Volkswagen, I think, all right, I don't know how he did that, but whatever vitamin he's taking, I want. We need to, see... When we try to think that we're all that and we, we think that we're perfect and we think we've got it all taken care of and God is lucky to have us, then people look and say, oh, well, you know, of course God's able to use that guy. We look at Billy Graham who, who had this incredible ministry. They well, of course, of course God was able to do things through Billy Graham. He's Billy Graham. What's the difference between you and Billy Graham? You're not named Billy? That's it. Do you think God loved Billy Graham more than he loves you? No. 
God says he wants to use us, but we have to get ourselves out of the way first. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. I love this verse. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars maintaining or containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. Why has remnant survived? Ten years, eleven years now. Why have we survived so long? Most church plants last two, two and a half years. That's the average. Because we didn't, we weren't a, like a spin-off church from another place. We started from the ground zero. Why have we been able to survive? Because Jeremiah and I are perfect pastors. And the fact that you laughed is very hurtful. <laughs> it's accurate, but it's hurtful. Why? Look, I got news for you. I'll let you in a little secret here. I think Remnant has survived in spite of me and Jeremiah. Not because of us. We were smart enough to know we need to get out of God's way. That may be the only thing we've contributed at this point. We're smart enough to know God's going to do it, and if God's not going to do it, it's not going to get done. We started with some ideas, and we've hung to those, and sometimes they've been hard to do. You know, we, I, I said earlier today, we don't talk about money for the most part. And so we, we ran into a place where we were not going to be able to pay that next month's rent, and we were, we'd be like a homeless church. So Jeremiah and I talked about it. I said, well, what do we do? Do we, do we go ahead and say to the church, hey, we need you guys to give because we've got this bill, or do we keep our mouth shut and maybe be homeless the next week? And we decided that one of the principles we put was we were not going to beg for money for remnant. We're just not. So we didn't. We didn't say anything. God took care of us. That week, we got a check that, took, that covered the rent plus a little bit more. And I've always wondered what would have happened if we had opened our mouths. If God would have said, you know what? If you're going to take the reins of this, then I'm going to let you have it. But because we're willing to say, okay, God, look, we started this the way you said to start it. We're doing this thing the way you said to do it. And if that's the case, then God, you've got to take care of this. And God does. What I'm going to challenge you to do today is let go of the reins of your life. Quit trying to be the boss. You're not the boss. You're not the boss of me. We say that when we're in kindergarten, right? Another kid tells you, you're not the boss of me. You know what? You don't really get to tell God that. But we do all the time. So I'm going to give you some things in this, in this one verse. Look at this one verse. So much there. First thing you need to know is that the gospel is a treasure. What is the gospel? Gospel actually comes from a German term, good spell, good story. The good story is that Jesus came and he died for us so that we could live. The good story is that Jesus came because he loves us. And he died on the cross for our sins so we wouldn't have to pay that ultimate penalty. But Paul says we have this treasure. What treasure? What, are we, what is a treasure? Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6, the, the verses that were just before the one we read. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it's hidden only from people who are perishing. 
Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. This treasure that we possess, this treasure, is the glory of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the treasure we possess. One of the reasons we think that you need to read your Bible, one of the things, reasons we think you need to get into God's word is so you know more about this treasure. So more of this treasure can show through you. I came across a list this week of seven things that actually happen when you become a Christian. When you give your heart to Christ, what happens? Because we know that your life changes but, but what exactly changes? And I, I like this list. So first of all, I'm forgiven. I come to know Jesus, I'm forgiven. God has removed my debts. What, did we, what debt did we owe? We owe death. The wages of sin are death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So I'm forgiven. Second, I'm justified. God has changed my state, my status. I used to be an enemy of God but now I'm God's friend. I'm regenerated because God has transformed my heart. See, a lot of people want to give Jesus their heart, but a lot of people don't want to give Jesus their mind. See, you've got to change your way of thinking. You've got to let God change your way of thinking. If you still look at your old times, the old sin that you were in, and think, oh man, that was great. You know, yeah, you know, I shouldn't do it anymore. But man, that was great. I got news for you. You're headed back. If you can't look back at your sin and have it turn your stomach and disgust you, you don't understand your sin. I got things in my past that I will not talk to you about because I'm embarrassed. They're between me and God and they're covered by Jesus' blood and that's a good place to leave them. I'm reconciled. God has become my friend. I'm adopted. God has changed my family. Isn't that great? To be adopted. I'm adopted. I am redeemed. God has changed my ownership. Remember reading the story about a little boy that had a boat and he took it down to the, to the lake and the boat got away from him. And he tried to chase it, but he lost sight of it. And He was heartbroken. He loved that boat. He saved up his money and bought it. A few days later, he's walking through town, and there in the window of the pawn shop was his boat. It was his boat. And he went in and told the guy, hey, this, that's my boat. The guy said, okay, well, you can have it for $5. And the kid said, oh, wait a second, it's my boat. He said, no, it's my boat. Somebody brought it to me. I paid him for it, so you got to pay me. So the little boy went back. He could have bought a different boat, but he wanted his boat. 
earned all the money, went back to the store, took him weeks, went back to the store and said, hey, mister, here's $5, I want my boat back. The guy gave him the boat, and on his way out, the storekeeper heard the little boy say, hey, little boat, you were mine once, now you're mine forever. And I wonder sometimes if God doesn't look at us that way. We come to him with our lives torn apart by sin. We're hurting. God comes to us and he says, hey, I want to buy you. I'll pay the price for you. And I will never let you go again. I'm redeemed. I'm sanctified. God has changed my behavior. How do you know somebody's a Christian? Their life has changed. Their actions have changed. The way they talk changes. The things they do. The way they feel about things. If a man has all of this, he's rich. A person. I don't want to be like sexist. Imagine that. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. If you have this, you're rich. In fact, I will tell you that compared to this kind of richness, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are beggars. They're poor. This is what makes us rich. So how do we, how do we come to possess it? This is the treasure. How do we get it? Let's look back at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds who don't believe. I see people who don't know Jesus and they're upset about things and, and they're like, like Bill Maher and some of these guys on TV and they're really disdainful of Christianity and they talk bad about Christians and all this stuff. And I look at them and think, you're not worth getting mad about. Because Satan has blinded them to the truth of who Jesus is. Now they helped. I mean, they're, they're kind of pains. But Satan has blinded them because if they really saw who Jesus was, they would change their ways. At some point, think about when you became a Christian. Didn't you at some point realize, you know what? There's more to this Jesus thing than just going to church on Sunday. It started a hunger, a gnawing in your heart. And you had to find it. That's what's missing from these other guys. Satan has blinded them. So the, so the world is blinded by Satan, but then look at verse 6. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, God's the one who did it. Why did you become a Christian? Because God opened your eyes. So think about the people in your lives who don't know Jesus and have all the issues that we talked about. What's the difference between you and them? They're still blind. You need to be the light that God uses to shine in their hearts. If we are saved, it's not because of anything we said or did. It's all because of Jesus. Second thing we need to know is that we are God's jars of clay. We're God's jars of clay. You ever watch Antiques Roadshow? I like that show. Some guy, you know, has got something stuck in, the, in his attic, and, or, he, you know, he, he bought something at a yard sale for 10 bucks, 
And it's been sitting, and then Antiques Roadshow comes to his, 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 his neighborhood. And he says, well, go check it out. Look at the picture of this vase. This vase was in an attic somewhere. It had been in their family. It had been in their attic. Somebody bought it, and then somebody said it was ugly, stuck it in the attic. They took it to Antiques Roadshow. You know how much that vase is worth? $45,000. That's like new car money. For a stupid... Now, I don't know who's paying $45,000 for that, because that's kind of ugly. I've got to be honest with you. And me here think that's pretty. It's yellow. It's got weird painting on it. I, I don't see it. I pay you, I give you 10 bucks for it because I could put stuff in it maybe. You know, pens and things like that. $45,000? I don't think so. Find out it's, you know, made by some obscure genius from Poland and, you know, the world has been looking for it. I bought it for 10 bucks at a yard sale. Sometimes the vase becomes a vase. Because $45,000 is not a vase anymore. It's a vase. And you have, to, you have to poke your eyebrows when you say it. It's a vase. It's from the Ming dynasty. It's a vase. It's a piece of pottery. But sometimes the greatest treasures come in ordinary pots. We are God's jars of clay. We are God's crockery. But he keeps the greatest treasure in us. 1947, a Bedouin shepherd found a ceramic jar containing very ancient scrolls in a cave overlooking the Dead Sea. Since he couldn't read the scrolls, he had no idea what they said. Later, more scrolls were discovered in the same cave and in others nearby. The shepherd eventually sold three of the scrolls for approximately $29. Only later was it determined that he had stumbled upon the greatest collection of biblical manuscripts found in the 20th century. You probably have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some dude found them and sold them for 29 bucks. These scrolls contain parts of every Old Testament book except Esther, all of them dated a thousand years earlier than any copy known at the time. You never know what you're going to find in a clay pot. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not ourselves. By the way, in case you think otherwise, the word used there for jars of clay in the biblical time literally meant just ordinary earthenware. Just ordinary clay pots that you could go to Walmart and buy. Well, maybe not Walmart, but you could go and buy them just anywhere. They're not expensive. It's not a vase from the Ming Dynasty. It's just a regular old clay pot. See, because the treasure isn't the pot, it's what's in it. The treasure in your life isn't you. It's God in you. See, the thing about clay pots is they were fragile. And they were easily broken. You know what? Just like we are. 
That's us, folks. We're clay pots. We're fragile. We're easily broken. And yet, with all of that weakness, God chooses to keep his glory inside us. Isn't that amazing? If I had, like, God's glory, I'd put it in a safe. It would be surrounded by lead so x-rays couldn't get in it. And it would be surrounded by this and that. All these things, I would, you know, I'd get a Brinks armor truck or something. God says, nah, just keep it in clay pots. We all have our limits whether we like to admit them or not. You can go and go and go and go and go, but sooner or later life catches up with you. And then we get broken like everyone else. Like to think we can handle anything. We can't. Like to think we can go on forever. We can't. Like to think we can stand up to anything. We can't. You know what they say at your funeral? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Well, that's a happy thought. Thank you, Jerry. Tell us more happy things. I got news for you. You're going to die. Your clay pot's going to break. But that's okay. Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. God made the first guy out of a pile of dirt. Pile of dirt. You ever wonder if Adam and Eve had belly buttons? Ponder that for a while. A belly button is a scar of birth. Adam and Eve weren't born. They were created. But I think they had a dent. And here's why. I think about this stuff. Somebody has to think these big thoughts. It's my job. Because it would look weird if they were just like smoothies. So I think God did like the pop and fresh dough thing and press them on somebody. Yep, yeah, you're done. And it made a little dent so they had a belly button. Because otherwise they would look weird. Their kids are like, how come we have, a, we have a hole and you guys don't have a hole? So it's my own theory. I get to heaven. I got a lot of questions for God. I'm going to go to Adam and Eve and I'm going to find them and say, belly button? No? In or out of, yeah. That's our true identity. We are dust. We're a clump of dirt that has been put together and yet we hold God's greatest treasure. God hides his gospel in us, fragile jars of clay, perishing people who are here today and gone tomorrow. You ever think about that? Think about your lifetime in the scheme of all of history. We're not even a dot. Like, oh, I've lived a long, good life. Okay. Lynette, we're talking this morning. I'm going to be 60 in February. 60. That's old. That's the oldest I've ever been. And hopefully not the... Hopefully not the oldest I'll ever be. And you think, "Ah, that's a long time. But the United States has lasted 200 and something years. I'm not even half of that. 
recorded history has gone on for thousands of years. Now I'm, now I'm really small. I'm a, I'm a speck on the timeline of the earth. And yet God chooses to keep his glory inside of me. One of his sermons, John MacArthur writes about what it means that God chooses to work through jars of clay. He pointed out that when God wanted to communicate his message, he didn't go to the elite of Egypt, Greece, or Rome, or even to the elite of Israel. Think back to the Christmas story. Who were the first people that found out about Jesus? Shepherds. Nobodies. Bunch of guys out there hanging out on the hillside with sheep. Not exactly a glamorous job. But where did he go? Where did he send Jesus? Where did Jesus look for disciples? Jesus looked for disciples on the shore of Galilee and he found a bunch of fishermen. In fact, you look at the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit falls on them and they began to speak in languages they don't understand, they're all like, who are these guys? These are a bunch of fishermen. These are a bunch of uneducated dudes. How do they know this? It was God. But look at what he writes next. He says, I think God absolutely delights in that. He chose clay, plot, clay pots through whom to preach his, his great salvation message. He passed by Herodotus, the historian. He passed by Socrates, the philosopher. He passed by Hippocrates, the father of medicine. Plato, the philosopher. He passed by Euclid, the mathematician. Archimedes, the father of mechanics. He passed Hipparchus, the astronomer. Cicero, the orator. And Virgil, the poet. And he chose what someone tell us is a little hunchback Jew with a deformed face without great oratorical abilities. And he put in that little clay pot the priceless treasure and he's still doing it. There are a lot of people who believe that, that Paul had a hunchback. That he was almost blind. And there's a lot of evidence to back that up. Who did God choose? None of those great philosophers. Right? He chose some little dude over here that probably not the prettiest dude in the world. And he's still doing that. He's still choosing us. The last phrase of that is the key. He is still doing it. Understand that, that God putting his treasure in clay pots didn't stop back then. It's us too. God intends to bless the world by hiding the gospel in clay pots that don't seem very impressive by worldly standards. And I know what you're thinking now. Thinking, okay, Jerry, this is called the imperfect family. How does this tie into our family? Because it's a lot easier when you can look at the imperfections in your own self and realize that you're fragile and that you're easily broken and that maybe you're not the prettiest pot on the shelf. It makes it easier for you to look at the people in your lives, in your family, and say, you know what? They're just an ugly pot like me. I'm not a Ming vase. I'm just an ugly clay pot. And so are they. See, all of this stuff extends into our families. When we become comfortable with who God is in us, we can become comfortable with who God is in other people. When we start seeing ourselves the way God sees us, we can look at other people and see God the way God sees them. We need to start looking at people through God's eyes, not our own. 
Well, I expected them to be better than that. Really? Why? They're a clay pot. Why would they be better than that? I expected them to... You don't get to expect. God expects. Finally, God uses us to show his power. Translators use different phrases to highlight the power that Paul has in mind here. They speak of the surpassing greatness of this power, or this extraordinary power, this transcendent power, or even this splendid power. The Greek word for power here is dunamis. You might be familiar with an offshoot of the word dunamis. It's called dynamite. It's explosive. It's a fitting word because in our world, power is often very negative. I'm watching all the stuff that's going on between the president and the Congress and all these people, and I've got to be honest with you, I just wish they'd all go away and shut up. That's as political as I'll get. I just wish they'd shut up. But when it comes down to it, it's an abuse of power. Everybody has it. If you get a little bit of power, you ever say of somebody that your best buddy, then they get promoted at work, and all of a sudden they're like wild men? All of a sudden, now, uh, I had this guy that I called him by a nickname his whole life. He was a, he was a, he was a kid, he, or nickname, and I, so I, I, I met him at, I, I saw him, I was eating some lunch with some, some deputies and stuff, and he comes over and I, and I said, hey, called him by his nickname, because I say his nickname, you know who he is. I called him by his nickname, and he, 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 got real, he looked at me real funny. And he went, got down, and he, and he whispered in my ear, I guess you didn't know that I've been appointed as a pastor now. I said, okay. He says, so really you should call me pastor so-and-so. Really? Did, did, did I miss like some super secret thing that goes on in you when you call you pastor? I've been in the ministry for almost 40 years. I don't care if you call me pastor. My mama named me Jerry. You can call me Jerry. I don't get caught up in titles. What do I care about a title? A title is just a, I don't know, it's a, it's a barrier. But he had to be called pastor because that was his little power trip. You know what? Dude, get over yourself. Because it's God, not you. It's God's power, not your power, not your great oratory. I... I learned to speak like this. You ever, you ever read somebody that has a prayer voice? Or preachers that have a preaching voice? You know, you're talking to them and they talk to you like this and then they get behind the pulpit and the Lord spoke. Hallelujah. And he said, Duh. I don't know if they get asthmatic when they get behind the pulpit or what's going on, but Jill Kennedy, by the way, has dared me. You'll know when I'm getting ready to leave Remnant because my last sermon in Remnant, she wants me to do the whole sermon that way. I don't think I can. Not, not keep a straight face. We get so caught up in power, but power divides people. Power puts one person higher than another. Power in our families destroys families. You have one, one you know, I've got power here, and a spouse says, I've got power here, and the other spouse says, I've got power here, and you don't have that power. I have this power, and we just fight. Think about it. A lot of our fights are all about power. Who's got the power of what? 
But God's power is different. God's power unites people. It tears down walls. It restores marriages. It rebuilds families. It lifts up those who've been downtrodden. Heals broken hearts. It forgives the deepest sins. Gives you hope in the darkest hour. And gives light in the valley of death. God has arranged it. God arranges things so that the whole world will know that this sort of life-changing power comes from God and not from us. Mark, make a note somewhere to go back and read Gideon, or Judges chapter 7, the story of Gideon. Let me give you the, I'll give you the high spots. The Midianites were ready to attack Israel with 135,000 soldiers. Gideon had an army of 32,000 men. And he's ready to counterattack. That's a four-to-one advantage for the Midianites. Four-to-one. You're still outclassed. But evidently, God didn't like those odds. So he tells Gideon, tell them if, they, if they're afraid to fight, they can go home. So 22,000 men left. That left Gideon with 10,000 people. Now the odds are 13-to-1. There were still too many. So God instructed Gideon to dismiss all the soldiers who didn't lap water like a dog. He said, go to, the, go to the river and watch the ones. If they stick their head in the water, send them home. The guys that cup the water and, and, and lick the water out of their hand, those are the ones you're keeping. Remember, it started 4 to 1, then went to 13 to 1. Only 300 men were left. And if you're, if you're Gideon, you're like, Hey, God, you know, you're sending all the guys away. We were already outmanned. Now we're really outmanned. Now the odds are 450 to 1. And that suited God just fine. 450 to 1. Gideon divided his men into three groups of 100 for a nighttime assault. He instructed his men to wait until the changing of the guard at midnight and then blow the trumpets, the ram's horn, the shofar. Then hold up torches and shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And you're thinking, okay, but they've got like a lot of soldiers and we've got, we've got fire and we've got a horn. Think about it. You're going to go to battle. What do you got? You got trumpet players and you got a, and you got a, you got a cool slogan. Here we go. For the sword of the Lord. For Gideon, too. It's like, God, what are you thinking about? Can we at least have swords, God? Do you know what happened? The ambush so greatly shocked the Midianites that they fled in fear and confusion and they attacked each other in the process. And Gideon's 300 men won the victory. Judges 7, verse 2 says, You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they save themselves by their own strength. Okay. If it's a four-to-one ratio, you might think, yeah, we're just, we're just studs. That's why we were able to do it. <laughs> God was lucky he had us that day. Then 22,000 of them go home. Now it's 13 to 1, and you're like, yeah, I, I think we could do it. We've got some good guys here. Then it's 4 to 1, and you think, if God doesn't do this, we're in, we're in trouble. 
And that's right where God wants you in your life, by the way. Where you get to the place where you say, if God doesn't show up, I'm in trouble. See, we get really safe in our life. We get really nice and cloistered, and we've got our little daily routine. I have my daily routine. I wake up in the morning, I got these three things I do before I go lead prayer with the guys and you know, get my day started. And I don't like it when things get thrown off kilter. Don't like, wait a second, I, don't, I, don't, I, I can't, I can't, what do you mean I can't have my coffee this morning? Ah! But God wants us to know that he's there. He's the one that's going to win the battle. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. Well, I'm afraid to talk to my friends about Jesus. They might laugh at me. And? Well, no, I don't want them to laugh at me. You big sissy lala, stop it. It's time for us to start taking some risks. Years ago, I saw a No Fear t-shirt. Remember No Fear? Those big things back then. And it said, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. When is the last time you did something for God that just scared you to death? When's the last time you did something for God that scared you a little bit? Well, let me pray over my Cheerios. Lord, bless these Cheerios. Please don't let me choke to death on them. Hallelujah. I've said it before, man. Look. A lot of us, if God didn't show up, we wouldn't know the difference. Because we're not risking anything for him. You know what? It's time for you to get out of your safety zone. We're told to put on the armor of God. You know, the helmet and the the breastplate and all that. You know why you put on armor? You don't put on armor to march in a parade. You put on armor to get in a fight. put on armor to get into the thick of it. Why are we told to put in armor? I'll put on armor because we're supposed to be in the thick of God's battle. Not standing off to the side like some weakling or we're scared. When I played football, that was back in the old days. Now the the helmets are molded in color and stuff, but back in the old days you had to spray paint your helmet if you played football. Now we find out that it's not good for the helmets. In those days, they didn't care. If you had hit in those helmets, you were going to die anyway. We had a kid in our team who hardly... So anyway, so you would run into other guys, because that's what football is. Vince Lombardi said, uh, people think that, that, dan- that football is a contact sport. No, dancing is a contact sport. Football is a collision sport. You got big guys running into each other on purpose. And little guys running around trying to get away from the big guys, and we call them sissies. Anyway. We would get stick marks in our helmets and we'd like big gouges and it would knock the paint off. You'd get the other guy's paint on your helmet. You're like, yeah, look at that one. We had this one kid on our team that hardly ever played and when he did, he basically ran away. He just kind of was scared all the time. But he had stick marks all over his helmet. We couldn't figure out where he got them. So we followed him home one day. He's got his helmet, he's got his pads, you know, he's got his helmet in his hand, and he's walking down the, down, down the street, he's hitting his helmet on stuff. That's how he got his stick marks. They're not even real stick marks. I mean, put the helmet on running into the wall, I'll give you a little bit of respect. You're not very smart, but at least it's a little bit of respect. 
But just to bang your helmet against the fence and against the wall and stuff, that's cheap. So he caught up to him and told me he had to repaint his helmet. Why? Because you didn't earn those. See, people with the jeans that are all cut up now and stuff, you used to have to earn holes in your jeans. Now you buy them with holes in them. Excuse me? When God wants a, to win a victory, he chooses a loser and makes him a winner. I like what Jack Wurtson said. He said, God is looking for nobodies who will become somebodies in his hands. See, I have spent my entire ministry with the idea that I want to do something so great for God that everybody knows there's no way it could be Jerry Godsey. It can't be him. He's not that smart. He's not that talented. And let's be honest, just about anything I would do for God would fall into that category because I'm not that smart. I'm not that talented. God wants the world to see what he can do through people whose trust is in him alone. That's why he puts the gospel in these fragile jars of clay. That's why he puts us in families. God wants your family to be an example of what can happen to a family when God resides in it. God wants your family, this, this jar of clay, because what's a, what's a family made of? People. What's a church made of? People. So your family is a bunch of broken, or little fragile clay jars together. And God wants our family unit of clay jars to show the rest of the world what can happen when God's in a family. Brings me back to the quote by Bill Gates, the success is a lousy teacher. It makes smart people think they can't lose. That's why God prefers losers. He needs people who will look at their family. He needs people who will look at the people around them and realize that God is so much greater than we are. When you look at your family, you need to look at them and realize that they are number one. They're more important than you are. Well, well wait a second. No, no. Your family is more important than you are. And see, the nice thing is that your family should be believing that you're more important than they are. Husband, you ought to think that, you're more, that your wife is more important than you. Wife, you ought to think your husband's more important than you. See, it's this thing that meshes together. Because as I try to become closer to Christ, and my wife tries to become closer to Christ, we become closer to each other. We begin to mesh. The less we are, the more he becomes to us. Less of me and more of him. We're clay pots, folks. Years ago, a writer talked about Billy Graham. I said earlier, why, why would God use Billy Graham? This is what he wrote. He said, God uses Billy Graham because he knows he can trust Billy Graham with his glory. Billy won't try to claim it for himself. And he never did. If you ever read anything from Billy Graham, he was always so humble. He always talked about what God was doing. He never said, well, I am, you know, maybe the greatest preacher ever. It was always about what God was doing.
And I'll be honest with you, I don't know that Billy Graham was a tremendous preacher. He was, he was, he was, he was good to listen to. But I wouldn't say, I'd, I'd rather listen to my grandpa than, than Billy Graham. What does that mean? It just means that God's using Billy Graham in a different way. My grandpa never spoke before a stadium, Angel Stadium, and preached to all those thousands of people. My grandpa never did that. I've never done that. So what does that mean? It just means that God's got something else for me to do. God had a different path for my grandfather. God has a different path for you. You may not ever be a pastor. And you know what? That's okay. Are you doing what God wants you to do? Look at your family. Are you loving your family the way God wants you to love your family? Are you doing for your family what God wants you to do for your family? Are you who God wants you to be? See, it all works together, doesn't it? And, and well, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to be what God wants me to be, but my husband isn't. That's between him and God. You're not going to fix him. Ladies, you're not going to fix your husband. Husbands, you're not going to fix your wife. Parents, you're not going to fix your kids. I know, because I spent a lot of time trying. And all it did was dig me a hole I couldn't get out of. James Denny of Scotland said that there has always been men in the world so clever that God could make no use of them. Always been men so clever that God couldn't use them. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be, I don't want to be so smart that my family suffers. I, want to, I don't want to be so self-important that my family suffers. kind of break this whole message down into this. God uses broken, fallible, and very weak people because that's all he's got to work with. Why does, God, why does God use me? Why does God use Jerry Godsey? Aside from my devastating good looks. Thank you for not laughing so hard. That, was, that helped. I felt better. Why does God use me? Because I don't think you can find anybody less qualified than me. Why does God use you? Why not? Why does God want to grow in your life and use you to reach people? Because you're all he's got to work with. When we took the church in Gardena, they hadn't had a piano player for a long time, and Lynette knew how to chord on the piano, so she would lead worship on the piano. And one of the ladies walked up to her and said, you know what, thank you for playing the piano. We haven't had somebody in so long. You sounded good. And I'm, I'm sure it was meant to be a compliment, but it was kind of a left-handed, you know, smack comment. Look, get your pride out of the way. Why does God use you? He didn't have anybody else. But you know the great thing about it? He doesn't want anybody else. He wants you. Why does God want you to work in your family? Because you're the one he has to work with there. You may be the only Christian in your family. God wants to use you. You're his clay pot. This broken down, kind of homely clay pot. Oh, and by the way, the glory of the risen Savior 
is inside it. The glory of the creator of the universe is in that ugly clay pot. Quit worrying about the package and start worrying about what's inside. I want to challenge you this week, challenge you to die to yourself. Realize that God wants to do so many great things through you, but he can't as long as you're the boss. Think you're a loser? Good. That's who God uses. Let's pray. God, thanks. You are so good to us, God. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. God, I don't know how... I don't know why you chose to use me, Father. Maybe again, because there wasn't, really wasn't anybody less qualified. But God, you used me and you love me. So Father, I pray for the men and women that are in this church right now, Father. God, that you would open their hearts. That right now, in the quietness of the moment, you would begin speaking. God, we feel so bad about ourselves sometimes. And all you want us to do is you want us to recognize that it's not about us anyway. It's about you. It's about your grace. It's about your mercy. It's about your love. And God, we need to, we need to show people your love. We need to show people what you're doing inside us. God, it's not about us. It's not about our clay pot. It's about the treasure that's inside it. Father, I pray for families right now, God, that you would speak to them. God, that they would realize that even if they're the only person in their home that believes in you, Father, they can be the clay pot full of treasure. They can be the catalyst that changes that, that, that family. Not because of them, but because of you. Thanks, Father. You've been listening to a presentation of Remnant. For more information, visit us online at remnantchurchiv.com. You